I was lucky. I spent a bit of my childhood on and off in Cedarhurst, New York, uh, which is also the town where my father mostly grew up. And there was a cantor there who'd been singing, I think, for more than half a century at the synagogue, and he was fabulous. And so I think, although I didn't know it at the time, that had a big impact on the kind of sound I wanted to produce as well. There was something so soulful about that kind of music and that kind of singing. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. In October of 2015, my wife Paul and I were traveling from Pittsburgh to Cleveland to see a museum exhibit called The Violins of Hope. As we would pass through Youngstown, Ohio, I had reached out to the music department at Youngstown State University. That is how I was introduced to Joseph Krumholtz a professor of violin at the university. What drew me to interview Mr. Krumholtz was his decision to teach at a university located in a city facing a variety of social and economic challenges. He made this decision because he believed the students from that region of the country might benefit from the beauty, hope, and sense of accomplishment that learning to play music can bring into someone's life. Here is that interview. Hi, my name is Joseph Krumholtz. I teach violin, viola, and I conduct the chamber orchestra at Youngstown State University here in Youngstown, Ohio. And where'd you grow up? I grew up mostly in Reston, Virginia, a suburb of Washington, D.C. I was born in New York in 1986 and then moved as an infant uh, to the D.C. area where I stayed until I was, I think, 17, at which point I moved to Cleveland to take part in the Young Artist Program at the Cleveland Institute of Music. There I spent my last year of high school living in the dorms at CIM, as it's called, and uh, basically having the college experience early while I was still in high school. So we were talking on the phone uh, before we set up this interview, and uh, and I came here uh, basically to Cleveland because the Violins of Hope exhibit has just come to Cleveland. Could you explain what that exhibit is first? Well, as I understand it, it's a collection of violins that were used and played in ghettos and camps during the Holocaust uh, by Jews and possibly by other survivors as well. And these instruments have been collected and restored by Amnon Weinstein, I think, uh, a uh, violin maker. And now they've been played by various orchestras, I think, including the Cleveland Orchestra and the Berlin Philharmonic. And now they're uh, currently on display, I think, at the Maltz Museum in Cleveland. And we were talking about a connection in your own family to that horrible event. Yeah. Um, my mother's maternal grandparents, my great-grandparents, uh, were among the many victims of the Holocaust. Uh, they spent most of their last years in uh, Terezin, or Theresienstadt, the concentration camp that was especially 
reserved mostly for intellectuals, artists, this sort of thing. I think it's in the Czech Republic today. Um, and so there was a lot of culture there and a lot of sort of a fake culture also uh, displayed for the Red Cross when they came and there was a famous visit. And so they knew, I think, a lot of the musicians who performed and composed in the camps and wrote letters and diaries about this, That some of which my mother has managed to, uh, to find and preserve. So did they, they didn't survive, though? No. They, like so many people there, I think they were sent on what was maybe the very last train to Auschwitz in, uh, in 1945, I think it was. Um, and uh, I think uh, they, were, uh, they were among the last victims of the gas chamber there. Um, my mother uh, and my mother's mother spoke to a person who had survived Theisenstadt, and as they were hurting many, as the Nazis were hurting many Jews onto this train, they thought about trying to stay or struggling, and my great-grandfather apparently said to my great-grandmother, we've survived many things, we'll survive this too. But I guess they didn't. Now, they, they themselves were not musicians? No. Um, my great-grandfather was a writer and a, a journalist. He'd been a cultural attaché uh, from Czechoslovakia uh, to Berlin. And uh, they managed to get their kids out, but they didn't get out themselves. Do any of his writings survive? Yeah, I think so. His name was Kamil Hoffmann. Um, and some things of his survive. I know there have been small exhibits, exhibitions occasionally about him, but I'm not, I have to admit, I'm not particularly familiar with his work. And and this idea or fact of how important the violin and viola and cello are in the Jewish culture, could, could you speak about that at all from your own experience growing up and what it meant to you when you first began to hear the violin and get interested? Sure. Well, when I was three, I apparently told my parents abruptly that I would be a violinist, and that was that. And I, I think they were sort of nonplussed about that and didn't quite know how to react and sort of said, okay, now, you know, maybe go play with your fire trucks or something. Um, and uh, But I, I kept at it and I pestered them, and finally when I was five, I was allowed to start. Now, I'm not sure anymore uh, what caused me to say this at that point. Um, I do have some memories of listening, of course, to classical music on the radio and on CDs and records at a very early age. And I do remember growing up with not only classical music, but klezmer to a lesser extent, and of course, uh, Jewish songs at the synagogue. And I can't remember exactly when, but I do have memories of Itzhak Perlman playing into uh, in the TV. Uh, I remember watching Itzhak Perlman on TV, and that was, I think, probably a series of very transformative events. And I think he was sort of a, a childhood hero of mine. If I had one, it would have been him. I don't have many specific memories from that age, a handful of images perhaps, but n not a lot in detail. I think there probably were a number of contributing factors. My parents were both great music lovers and amateur musicians to varying degrees themselves. What I, instruments? My father played 
and continues to play, I suppose, <laughs> piano. Um, and he played other instruments on and off uh, through his uh, childhood and adulthood as well, including oboe and various uh, recorders. And my mother had been trained in piano as well. And I had a sister who's two years older, and she played piano. And I was the first person in, in my immediate family to decide to become a professional musician. So I'm not sure where exactly that idea came from. I guess I must have known it was a profession, but I don't think I knew much of what it involved at that point, just that I loved the sound of the violin, and that's what I was going to do. Do you remember the first violinist that you saw of a, of a high level of, of ability and what that experience was? Or, or maybe not the first, but the one that impressed you the most? Not with absolute certainty, no. But the first that I really still recall that's still present in my memory is a Tuck Perlman. I remember going camping with my family when I think I was seven, and we stayed at October Mountain in Massachusetts, and that was near Tanglewood, and we spent a couple of days going to concerts there, and I saw Perlman play Sinfonia Concertante with Pinchas Zuckerman, and I think they did the Hentel Halverson Passacaglia as an encore, and maybe some other things too, I'm not sure anymore. But that I remember pretty clearly still. And that was a revelation for me. I think I devoted some time afterward to writing fan mail that I never got the courage to send or something like this, you know. But at the time, that was absolutely a life-changing experience for me. I imagine there were probably earlier experiences too, uh, because by that point, I guess I would have been an aspiring violinist for about four years. But that's the first one that I really remember seeing in person. So going back to that question, and it may be a difficult or impossible question really to answer, this idea of the violin in, in the Jewish story, the long Jewish story. Yeah. I mean, I have some ideas as to why that is so important, but what are your thoughts? Well, the joke I was raised with was, you know, the question was, why do so many Jews play the violin? And the answer was that it's much easier to flee a pogrom when you're not carrying a piano on your back. Um, I, <laughs> I suppose, you know, I, I, I think, of course, it's an overgeneralization. Uh, there are many fantastic violinists throughout history who are not Jewish, and of course there are many fantastic Jews who were not musicians, and there were many fantastic Jewish musicians who were not violinists. So I, I think it's a bit of an oversimplification, but I do think it's that the violin is intimately tied in with many aspects of Jewish culture. It's such an integral instrument in a klezmer band. It's something you hear at weddings. It's so many people say the violin is the instrument closest to the human voice, and at some level, I think I'm always trying to imagine what a, a chazan would have done, a cantor would have done in a Jewish service. I was lucky. I spent a bit of my childhood on and off in Cedarhurst, New York, uh, which is also the town where my father mostly grew up. And there was a cantor there who'd been singing 
I think, for more than half a century at the synagogue, and he was fabulous. And so I think, although I didn't know it at the time, that had a big impact on the kind of sound I wanted to produce as well. There was something so soulful about that kind of music and that kind of singing. And that was something I tried to capture as much as I could. In the Jewish uh, religious practice, the violin didn't play a specific role or really any role, did it? It's more singing? It depends, I think, on what... I'm trying to think of the word. It depends on what part of Jewish culture or which Jewish community you're talking about. I grew up in a sort of modern Orthodox Ashkenazic culture where on the Sabbath and on high holidays, playing instruments wasn't part of what one did. On those occasions, singing was pretty much it. But when it wasn't a sacred day, the violin and other instruments were as much a part of the celebration as everything. Since then, I've played at synagogues both on holidays where in some parts of the culture, that's considered an integral part as well. In some cultures, uh, the fiddler was looked down upon uh, by certain people in the society as being not really serious enough about life. They were the people that were off there fiddling and maybe not doing the farm work like they should or other things or being industrious or making money. Is uh, In the Jewish culture, uh, have you seen that or is there just a, really a, a whole different understanding and appreciation for the artist? Well, I think it depends. I think that musician was probably one of the open career tracks to many Jews living in shtetl-oriented Central and Eastern Europe when Jews weren't allowed to own property or live in certain cities. Being an entertainer was something that they could do, and I think that's found its way into various traditions, not only Jewish violinists and other musicians, but... Jewish entertainers, writers, comedians. Uh, so I, I think it's probably a profession of decent repute. There was certainly never a sense in my family that being a musician was a second-class career. I was very lucky that I had a very supportive family that never steered me toward one profession or another, but simply told me that if I was going to do something, then I'd better make sure that I did my best at it. And I think being a musician, being a classical violinist, in trying to be an artist, there's a level of integrity that one has to have to do quality work that really is infused in every part of one's life. And it's not just a craft. It's not just something one does on the side, but it is central to one's identity. And so I think that prepares people who have this kind of feeling for success as well. I think further that there's such a an emphasis on education and on respect for one's teachers and one's elders that are common cultural values 
that that probably helps a lot as well. Yeah, I think we're in a time where this idea of, this has come up several times in conversations I've had with different people, uh, violin makers and musicians, as if today we are losing this sort of the respect for the elder or the master who can show you. Because there has to be a certain humility, you know, kind of you can't fill up a cup if it's already full. You know, there's an emptying so that you can receive what somebody's teaching you. But now with the Internet and, and many other ways to, uh, at least it appears, to gain knowledge, we don't need to show the same um, deference. In fact, we're all more like uh, Robert Bly wrote a book called The Sibling Society. There's no longer fathers and sons or daughters, right. which is also teacher and student. It's now we're all brothers and sisters. We're all colleagues, no matter what your age is. Have you experienced that? Sure. I'm fairly young as far as teachers go, I guess, still. Um, and I was arguably born in the last years of the pre-internet generation. I was among the last generations or sub-generations of people who grew up at least with part of their childhood before cell phones and the internet and social media were common. And I think that gave me enough quiet and solitude and monopolarity of sources of information that I had great respect for the sources from which things came. And I think probably the types of people my parents were instilled those values in me further. I don't think those values are gone. I think we love to wring our hands at what the next generation is like. And gosh, I suppose we've probably been doing that for thousands of years. Um, I think that this change in culture and resources has a lot of effects, many of which we probably don't fully understand or haven't even observed yet. On the one hand, students now can get many different opinions from many different sources about what makes good violin playing, some of which are of dubious quality. But it also allows them to see many different excellent opinions and that kind of exposure and the access to recordings and many cultures that exists today is an incredible luxury that they, I hope that they take full advantage of. So they're more empowered to really be participating in their own musical education? With the right guidance, absolutely. I think being able to tell the difference between good, mediocre, and subpar sources is a more important skill set than ever before because now anybody can publish their recording or their teachings with the click of a button. But provided that one has that guidance and learns those skills, I think there's almost nothing that one can't find or hear or listen to or learn from. So tell me about your... Um, this journey that you were on, when did the first meaningful violin come into your hands that was sort of, oh, well, what's this all about? Yeah. Well, I'd been 
doing something like begging my parents to start violin from about three. And we had some neighbors nearby who had two sons who played violin, so that was probably an influence as well. And I'm pretty sure I remember trying at least one of their violins before I started studying. But at age five, I started taking private lessons. And for the first few lessons, one learned things like how to stand and how to hold the bow and how to hold the violin. And I had a wonderful teacher named Bonnie Hudson who taught me some rhymes that went with those sorts of things. And I still remember many of them. And Give me a couple, can you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> there was a, I, I guess you could say it was a mnemonic, or, but something like a, a nursery rhyme, more or less, where you had to learn how to hold the bow. And then once you did that, you had to be able to, to move it around in certain ways without losing your bow grip. And so I had to move it up and down to the sides. And there was part of it where you said, up like a rocket, down like the rain, back and forth like a choo-choo train. And it went on and on like this. Um, That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I, and my this, father, this uh, size violin you were playing at that time? I played on a one-tenth size violin, so really tiny thing. And then I went through various sizes one by one. I moved on to one-eighth size, and then a one-quarter size, and then a one-half size, and then a three-quarter size, and then a full-size violin. When people talk about these very small violins, and I've seen them, uh, you, they just don't produce a lot of tone. There's not much there. And I'm wondering whether somebody that young, rather than being discouraged, is playing that instrument if they've had access to hearing the violin played very well or seen it played very well, that they imagine into it the sound. So it's not really exactly the sound they're hearing that would discourage anyone else. They oh. hear themselves playing better than, than they would be. Is that... Absolutely, that was the case with me. I think I was a child who was frequently lost in his imagination. Maybe that should be in present tense. At any case, I, I think I heard much more what I wanted to hear than what other people were probably hearing. Had I heard at the beginning the way I actually sounded and realized how that was, that probably would have been very discouraging. But... I think I'm constantly trying to be a better listener. I'm constantly trying to hear things more clearly and understand more clearly what it means, what I'm hearing. And that's a process that I think goes on for one's entire life. I had a really interesting sort of group conversation, uh, not long ago uh, that involved Mr. Perlman, actually. And I asked if there were challenges that came with playing when one gets to a certain age. And his response was that, in many ways, he's the best musician now that he's ever been because he's learned to listen so much better than even a few years ago. And I hope that I continue to be a better and better listener as time goes on and that that process never slows or stops. It's so interesting to try to understand what you're listening to. I say this because we just were in Pittsburgh and interviewed 
uh, a violinist who at one point was in this uh, laboratory that had this chamber, and he had the right name for it, I can't remember right now, but basically it's a chamber you would go in that absolutely no sound reflects back. You right. probably have heard of this. It's probably an anechoic chamber. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so this person said, well, go in there and play your violin. He said it was the most painful and yeah. really a distasteful experience of his life. First of all, he heard nothing in his right ear, no sound. Yeah. And his left ear, it sounded like he was sawing through a piece of wood. I mean, really, it was just grating sound. So we're back to this elusive word of the imagination. And how important is that in this uh, almost what you could call an enchantment with the sound that you're listening for and trying to produce with the instrument? I think the imagination is perhaps the one thing that a music teacher can't teach. I think there are skills associated with imagination that can be refined, enhanced, increased. But the imagination is absolutely key. And I find it's absolutely indispensable to my every moment of practice. I'm constantly trying to imagine what it is I want to say, what it is that I want my violin to sound like. I'm constantly trying to find a new and better voice. And I think that's a really challenging thing. It takes inspiration from other sources, from other people's interpretations and recordings, to conversations, to close study, of course, of the score. And sometimes brand new discoveries that I have no idea where they come from. I also get inspiration from many other fields as well. And those all contribute. But in the words of one famous violinist, if you don't know what it is you want to say, you already have all the technique you'll ever need. I think I can teach how to make something work if you know what it is that you want to do. And I can help people figure out how to figure out what they want. But at a certain level, violin playing is a very personal, internal, almost spiritual thing. And so it's not entirely bad to hear what you want rather than what you're doing at a specific point in time as well. That keeps us inspired because I think it's so important that every performance today is more than just an execution. You know, we go to concerts not just to see somebody play the right notes, although sometimes that's impressive, but we go because we want to feel inspired, because we want to laugh, because we want to cry, because we want to feel as though we can't breathe or feel like a little child again. And I think it's hard for me to help other people feel those things unless I can still find those feelings myself. I have to be able to feel them in order to communicate them. 
And so I, I try never to lose that childlike imagination and sense of wonder. And on those rare occasions that I succeed or almost succeed at that, I think that's when the magic of a performance that can only be found in performance has a chance of happening. Do you uh, see colors or shapes or anything that happens inside that imagination while you're playing? For me, it's often not quite that specific, although recently I've tried to be more specific and vivid in the stories I tell to myself. There are some people who experience synesthesia uh, and other people who believe they experience synesthesia. I don't... What is that? when somebody mixes together the different sensory inputs, so you might see a color of a certain sound, or I suppose other senses can be mixed as well. It's a, it's a phenomenon that some people have. I have friends who experience a certain C-sharp as purple. For me, it's not quite that specific, but I do think a lot about gesture. I think a lot about texture and color in more general senses, light versus dark, opaque versus translucent, thick versus thin, heavy versus light. I think about those kinds of parameters a lot. I think a lot of the meaning of music is through metaphor, And so that's a very important set of tools to be able to think about it so that you can analyze it and imagine it differently and to teach other people to do as well. And so this thing you touched on, which is certain almost transformative experiences can only occur in live performance. I think so. I've had times that I've been very moved by recordings as well, especially because I I try constantly to find new, amazing, inspiring recordings, especially those from the so-called golden age of violinists in the early and mid-20th century. But there's a kind of magic, a kind of energy that only happens when you're in the room with somebody. There's an ephemeral quality, knowing that this is the only time the person will play something like this. And when you're in a room with a lot of other people and you're all experiencing at some level the same thing, there can be an enormous amount of tension that can make it an absolutely thrilling or, in the best possible way, an absolutely devastating experience emotionally. I've heard recordings of some of the performances I've been to and played in, and the experience is always very different. Some of the best performances I've been to don't sound great when recorded, and some of the best recordings didn't sound that great in performance. And learning to know the difference is part of the skill sets, I think, of today's young recording musicians, being able to tell what makes a good take. Because I think that recording is a substantially different art form than performing, and both are more or less unavoidable for the vast majority of our artists. Some people 
specialized in both or more one than another. I mean, Glenn Gould is, of course, the famous example of somebody who gave up live performance for the latter part of his life, said he didn't like the non-take-two-ness of it. For him, that did wonders. For me, I enjoy the performance, I think, even more than the recording. But every person's got a different balance, I think. Well, it's whether the recording gods come to that session or not, or the performance yes, gods. I mean, absolutely. you do wonder whether there are are entities of some sort that are drawn to certain human activities. Who knows if we're alone? But I right. love, you know, my imagination runs in those directions. You know, in, in the Irish tradition, you have the the fiddler who goes to the fairy mound and makes a deal with the fairies and learns the wonderful fiddle tune or, or piper's tune. Going back to what I had asked you earlier, we talked about that one-tenth size violin yeah. and your your progression through the different violins, but tell me about the violin that first um, showed you or, let's say, communicated that there was another partner in this, that the violin itself as a medium uh, was was something you were going to show some understanding about and, and develop a relationship with? Or am I romanticizing that? No, I think that's really true. Unfortunately, I don't have a good vivid memory of this anymore, of those early days. Um, but it's always been an interesting relationship that I have with the violin I play on, or with any instrument, I suppose. The analogy everybody loves to use these days is the the idea of a magic wand from the whole Harry Potter series where the wand chooses the wizard. I think there is something a little like that in, in violin playing today. I've played on many, many different violins by now, which has been a real treat. Um, for a while, I taught violin playing at the North Bennett Street School in Boston, which is one of the premier schools of violin making in the world. And so I often had the incredible honor of being the first person to play a violin after it was strung up for the very first time. And sometimes I might have input of what its strengths were and what its weaknesses were. And sometimes I would change how the violin would be touched up after that. Um, maybe the varnish would be changed slightly or there would be setup changes. And so I got to experience many fantastic new violins and also some absolutely amazing old violins that were brought in for study and display and emulation. And it's an almost mystical being. And I, I likened it earlier to a relationship between player and instrument. I think that's really true. You know, you have good days and bad days, both individually, each of you, and for your relationship as a whole. And sometimes you go through good stretches and sometimes you go through bad stretches. But you come out knowing more about each other afterward, and that's always a fascinating, ongoing process. Well, I talked to Frank Allman at the Milwaukee uh, Symphony, and we went and talked to him, of course, about the Stradivari that was stolen right. and his whole experience with that. And at one point, he's married and has children, from what I understand. But he said, 
When it really comes down to it, I spend more time with my violin than any other human being in my life. And uh, what about that? Uh, how much time do you have to spend with the instrument? Or is there a place where you spend all that time to develop your technique and that uh, then sometimes do you have to put it down? Do you have to walk away from it occasionally? That's a really interesting question. There are times when I think I finally got big parts of this figured out. And then there are other times where I think I'm absolutely nowhere. And on the large scale of things, in the grand scheme of things, I suppose I don't know very much yet. I've had my current violin since I was maybe 12 or 13. And in one sense, it's been a real treat to be able to play on one instrument for more than 15 years now. And I think I'm just beginning to get to know it. Um, and of course, the violin changes over time also. It's getting older and it changes with the weather. Right now it's autumn and the heat's beginning to come on and the humidity and the temperature are changing. And so it behaves differently than it did even a couple of days ago. And I have to adjust to that. And every season this happens and every season happens similarly to the previous year, but also a little different. What's its best season, this particular violin? Oh, it's next one. <laughs> no, uh, I, I, think, I think my particular violin seems to respond better to my particular style of playing when it's drier out, which often means in the winter when the heat's on, which is different than many fiddles where they seem to respond a little better when they're a little more humid. But when it's too humid or uh, too hot in the summer, I often find that my violin's a little slow to respond. But of course, you can't go too dry or then seams open, cracks happen. But for this particular combination of it and me, I often enjoy the wintertime. Tell me about this violin. Who made it? Not a whole lot is known about it. It seems... It has a label inside that reads Günther Hemmel, 1909. It's a German violin by a virtually unknown maker. Uh, I did some looking at one point when I was teaching at the North Bennett Street School. I went through their scholarly catalogs of all known German makers, and he's not in there. A little internet searching found one other violin mentioned on the internet made by this guy. But I don't know anything about him, and nobody I've ever talked to seems to have ever heard of him or know anything about him or be able to find out anything about him either. But it's a beauty. It has this wonderful dark varnish and a dark sound. And it's gone through a lot of changes. It appears to have a different peg box or scroll from its early years, and its pegs have been rebushed and replaced a couple of times. And I think the angle of the neck has probably been reset. It's got a different tailpiece and a different sound post. And at a certain point, it's a little like the story of you know, George Washington's axe, where somebody claims to have it, of course, the handle 
has been replaced four times and the blade has been replaced five times, but it's still the basic same axe at, at some level, or at least so the story goes. My violin is probably very different than it was when it was still fresh off the tree, but it's mine and I keep coming back to it. I've tried other violins, I even bought another violin at one point and then ultimately came back to this and I'll probably stick with it for a while still. How do you acquire it? I I found it. Well, I should say my father found it at Potter's Violin in Bethesda, Maryland. I'd been going in there several times looking for a first full-size violin. And there was a gentleman who worked there who became a bit friendly with my father and knew that I was looking for something and called up my dad and said, come in today. We've got something and I think it's special. And I got a great my family got a great deal on it as a result, I suppose. It doesn't have a known maker. It doesn't have a fancy pedigree. It doesn't, it's not in pristine mint condition. It doesn't have the usual trappings of something that would give it great monetary value, but its inherent value in terms of the kind of sound it produces is something that I've always felt really fortunate to have. Some years ago, working on a radio show on family stories, I talked to a woman who told me a story about this very wealthy woman. And she had gone in to the Steinway uh, showroom in New York and tried all the pianos, and none of them was what she wanted, and explained the tone and the quality she was looking for in a piano. Two or three years went by, and then she gets a call from a salesman who says, we have your piano. Mm-hmm. She goes in, and it is her piano. I mean, she knows it as soon as she plays it. This is what I'm looking for. I love that, that somebody could have that kind of uh, skill or understanding to be able to match an instrument. So it could say, come in today. The violin I'm playing right now, there's a violin shop in town. And when I walked in, they kind of knew I was looking for a certain kind of violin. And it wasn't by a maker. It wasn't by any of those things. And uh, this guy, Ben, said, I think we've got it. And uh, I put it in my hands, and he was right. Yeah, I think that's so cool. I really do. And there's a kind of wizardry in that. We go back to the Harry Potter thing. Oh, absolutely. There's something vaguely like alchemy. You find the right person and the right violin, and in the right combination, you get gold. And you get it ever so slightly wrong, and the magic's not there. And I was very lucky to have, you know, both parents who were dedicated to finding the right thing and whatever perseverance or patience I had been taught. And also a violin shop and the people there who cared. So and money money wasn't really the first factor in their thought. It was really about the tone and the type of violin and who you were as a musician. Is that I, fair to say? I guess so. I, I think... You know, I was not at an age yet where I was really thinking about such things. And of course, money's always a factor for whoever's buying it. But that wasn't, I think, what this particular what this particular transaction was about. Incidentally, the gentleman who sold me that violin might 
be somebody that you know. His name is David Bash, and uh, I believe he's retired to Washington, but at the time he was uh, helping out at Potter's Violins. I've interviewed David. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. I didn't know you know him. knew him. Um, he knew me as a youngster, uh, relatively speaking. Yeah, he's spending a lot of time now going to Italy and finding violins that he really thinks are exceptional, bringing them back and working with yeah. Potter's Violin Shop. Yeah. You know, to come back to this this idea of the, the Jewish experience, which, you know, certainly has been um, full of sorrow in the 20th century, and this exhibit that's nearby, uh, have you ever played an instrument that was played by someone who later perished in the camps, or any instruments that have um, evoked that sense of history for you? I don't know if I've played an instrument specifically that was associated with the Holocaust or other tragedies of that particular kind. But for any violin, I try and keep in mind that while I'm holding it, I'm not its owner or a musician using it, but I'm just its current steward. And that is always a particularly strong and awesome feeling when playing a great old instrument. There are such amazing stories associated with almost any instrument of a certain age. And on those rare occasions where I've had the opportunity to play a Stradivari or a Guarneri or something like this, there are so many generations of amazing people and amazing musicians and collectors and families and triumphs and tragedies that are associated with that history. And I try and find out at least some of that. With almost all of these instruments of a certain caliber in history, at least some of that history is known. And there are amazing stories always of them being confiscated in the French Revolution or, or stolen in a war or belonging to somebody who kept it as their one possession until their death. I do try and treat my violin or any violin with a great deal of reverence. Not only because it's a fantastic piece of art, and not only because it's an historic object, and not only because it's something that somebody worked on a great deal to create and perfect. Although those are all important reasons, but because I think it's important, it's helpful as a violinist, as a musician, to touch the instrument the way you want it to sound. That's something that I learned from a lot of my teachers, and I think it's an idea that comes from the wonderful violinist and teacher Donald Weilerstein. And I think it's so important to love your instrument, at least while you're playing it. And that really changes, I think, how you end up sounding. You hear such stories of people liking to play Stradivari or Guarneri instruments as opposed to modern ones. And then you hear about these stories where in 
blind or double blind tests, we can't tell the difference. But I try and have the same sort of reverence for my own instrument when I play it that I'd have for any other instrument and play with the same kind of love. And I think that makes an important difference. You get this idea of these double-blind tests and so forth. Of course, they're playing an instrument they never played before. Yeah. They have to pick which one's the Stradivari. But if I put a thousand violins in front of you and you played them all and yours was in that thousand, you'd know it. I'd like to think I would. <laughs> I Maybe a thousand. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I, I, I haven't tried it. I'd like to think that I could. Well, this has been great. I'm trying to think of anything else. Have you ever had any adventures with your violin in the sense of leaving it in a cafe or the back of your car? Have you ever drove over it? All these horrible things that can happen. Or have you lived long enough to have those experiences? I wish I could say that I'm so perfect that I haven't. But closer to the truth would be to say all the time. I think uh, I, I unfortunately have my head in the clouds half the time and forget where I am or what I'm holding or where I put something. And my violin has not been totally immune to that curse of involvement with me in that way. Luckily, I've never forgotten for more than a moment after I've left the restaurant, you know. Um, the one time something really scary like that happened was... um. I used to take the Chinatown bus from Boston to New York and back almost every single weekend at one point. And I would often sleep on the bus, and when I woke up, I'd be very groggy and sort of out of it. And one time I woke up in New York and got off the bus, and I was on the subway before I realized that I'd left my violin on the bus. And I got back as quickly as I could to the bus station in Chinatown in New York and uh, asked them. And they were absolutely swamped with other people and other things going on, and it took forever. And eventually they figured out where that bus had gone. And it turned out the driver had taken that bus home for the night. Um, and they found him, and they called him up, and then I talked to him on the phone, which was not an easy thing to do because of the language barrier um, and persuaded him that that I would pay him if he would bring the bus back. And he was upset. I think he'd already gone home to his family. But um, I managed to persuade him that for 20 bucks, he could take the bus back to uh, to Chinatown in Manhattan. <laughs> and my violin was still there in the overhead compartment. And then every weekend after that, when I went down to the Lucky Star bus company to take the bus, they'd always remind me to take better care of my stuff. <laughs> they knew who I was after that. I'm afraid I was infamous from that incident. I can only imagine that emotion of relief when it finally was back with you again. The terror stayed with me for quite a while afterward, though. It, I think the adrenaline was with me for like a week after I got it back. But yeah, that was a very encouraging moment. Well, maybe the violin was saying, well, if you're going to leave me, then I don't think I'm going to play so well for you this week. Maybe <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I think I'm still paying for that in that case. <laughs> That's great. Um, 
you're in a city of Youngstown, Ohio. And Youngstown, Ohio is one of these classic cities that is struggling almost daily to reinvent itself. It was a, an industrial city. It has seen much better days. And you're here. You're teaching at Youngstown State University. What does that mean to you? What what commitment have you made in that regard? Or what can this school particularly do in this uh, reimagining of where this community can go? Yeah. Well, of course, I knew I, when I took the job that Youngstown is famous for some of its challenges. And that made me more enthusiastic about the job rather than less. It meant that it's really, perhaps even more, a job worth doing. That I'm working with students from this area who come often from difficult circumstances and still endure them. And seeing students like that overcome things like that, hopefully to some small degree, at least with my help, is a really inspiring thing. Youngstown State, I think, is the largest employer in this immediate region. And so it's the lifeblood of our economy and many of this area's hopes for rebirth. And I think most of the people who work here and teach here and live here and study here feel a profound sense of duty to try and make this place better for the people who come after us. At least, I hope we do. I know that that's something that I feel. And so I not only teach classes and lessons, but I make a point of reaching out to schools, for instance, and religious communities, and all sorts of constituencies that maybe to some small degree I can help, and I do it because I can. You're in a place where there's need. I think every place has need, but it's probably an even more acute need here than elsewhere. I think we need enchantment in our lives, in our work, our relationships with our wives and husbands, with our children. It's almost everything that we do needs an element of enchantment. And uh, I like this idea that we, hopefully as artists and as musicians, work with the tools of enchantment. Yeah. Across the street is the uh, Butler Museum of Art, of American art. Do you ever go over there and just wander around and look at those paintings? And uh, is there any painting over there that particularly moves you, even in your musical understanding? I go across the street to the Butler pretty frequently. We have a concert series there. Youngstown State University does. We have music at noon every Wednesday. It's a free concert to the public where students and faculty play. And we have some regulars who come every time. And then there are also other people who discover quite by accident when going there. And so I think those ties are really important. I love going there. 
there are so many wonderful pieces of art and wonderful projects and exhibits that they do. And we're very fortunate to have such great neighbors. I think what you said about the role arts play in our lives and the enchantment music provides is spot on. In a day and age when there's so much emphasis on STEM fields and on career training at a time when so much about what we're teaching our young is about making a living. I think it's more important than ever to also look at what makes life livable and what makes it worth living. And I think the arts are one of the main answers to that question. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. After we finished our conversation, I asked Joseph if he could pick up his violin and play me a piece of music. That's Shalom Aleichem. One sings it traditionally at the beginning of every Sabbath, every Friday evening. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I leave you now with a few words from the late and great U. Utah Phillips. Too many good people are doing too many good things for me to afford the luxury of being pessimistic. <laughs>